Welcome to the Hope New Podcast, a podcast for parents of children impacted by disabilities, where we believe there's beauty in the journey and purpose in the pain. Your hosts are Jonathan and Sarah McGuire. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Jonathan. I have good news. Oh, yeah? What's that? The upstairs bathtub is leaking, and we have to replace it. Um, I thought you said it was good news. Well, it is. It's just a matter of perspective. Okay. I'm not sure I'm following you. You're going to have to explain yourself. Yes, there is the negative that we didn't need this expense right now. And it will be a lot of work and a big hassle. But there are a lot of good things that are coming from it. Such as? Well, one, we will get a new bathtub that's not cracked. True. And when we replace the tub, we will also get a new faucet. So that means we won't have to listen to the nonstop dripping of the old faucet every night when we try to go to sleep. That's true. That's a definite positive. Third, we have an observant son who noticed the leak when he looked at the ceiling in the laundry room. This means nobody fell through the ceiling when they were taking a bath. Ooh, I am so thankful for that. When we take it out, this will give us the chance to look under the tub to make sure there's no mold growing. We only have to replace the tub and not redo the entire bathroom. And we have a second bathroom we can use. Finally, whilst being fixed, we only have to clean one bathroom. Okay, I see your point. We do have a lot to be thankful for, and I like how you're thinking. In fact, it reminds me of our guest today, Kristen Berry. Kristen does an incredible job of looking beyond the hard and into a situation and finding purpose and hope. Kristen is a foster-to-adopt mom, author of Born Broken, and Adoptive Journey, and a national speaker. She's the wife of Mike Berry, our guest last month, and co-founder of Confessions of an Adoptive Parent. We are so glad to have her on the podcast today. All right, Kristen, welcome to the Hope A New Podcast. Hi, it's so nice to be here. One of the things that I love about your family, you have fostered 22 children and have eight children all through adoption. What made you interested in adoption? Oh my goodness, what a great question. So I first came to have knowledge of foster care and adoption when I was a pretty small child. I learned that my grandpa grew up in the foster care system in the 20s and 30s. And my grandma was adopted by a family member. Um, An aunt of mine placed a baby for adoption. And my youngest brother was adopted. And so throughout my whole childhood, there was a thread or a theme of adoption. So it was always something I was aware of. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That I didn't... is a neat story. Yeah. Can you tell us your story of adoption? Yeah. So Mike and I got married really young. I was a junior in college. He had just graduated. And we both talked a little bit about how we envisioned our future. And I was just absolutely certain that I would be a foster and adoptive mom. And, but we were both really young, you know, and so I brought up the concept and the idea and he kind of looked at me like, I have literally no idea what you're talking about. And we're both first children. We're both fighters. And so, you know, we got into an argument about it and then we decided, hey, we're really young. We did not have to make this choice right now. Let's table the conversation until later. And uh, we went ahead and got married and started our life together. And that lingering idea was always in the back of my mind. And finally, 
boy, I'm kind of rushing through the story, I guess. But finally, I knew, my mom actually was the one who spoke wisdom to me on this. She said, you know, I, I know that you like to fight to the death about things and you're very persuasive. But having children is one of those things that you guys have got to agree on 100%. You do not want to go into raising a children, a child, you know, getting your own way. And so that was good advice. And she said, just hang in there. If it's the Lord's plan for you, then that's what will happen. And you two will end up on the same page. And that really is what happened. We were ministering at a church in Indiana we made friends with a couple who had adopted two little girls from China. My husband was a youth pastor at the time. I was children's minister. And he made friends with another youth pastor who had adopted teenagers. Around the same time, Stephen Curtis Chapman had come out with an interview in a, a magazine that Mike loved to read. And he was talking about the adoptions of his daughters. And so you know, it was just kind of one of those, again, just the, the chain of events and, and really the planting a seed. And, and Mike and I share equally in our relationship. So I don't want to say that I stood in the background and waited for him. Not, not really that, just the waiting to be in the same place at the same time. I was already convinced. I was sold on the idea. But as I watched him kind of come face to face with that. Not, I respect my wife. And so we're going to do this, whether I like it or not. It was more, oh, I respect my my wife. I I know she's excited about this, but I hadn't thought about it from a dad perspective. What would this mean for me? And as he came to know some other adoptive dads, he could really see himself in that role. And so we went to a local adoption agency. We really did not know what we were doing. We just kind of like wandered in. Hmm. and took a class. At, you had to take a, a class before you could even sign up to do anything. We took the class. We decided, yes, we want to work with this agency. We love their respect for birth moms. We love their low pressure. They weren't really pushing women into adoption. They had a great care system for their, their biological moms. They promoted parenting first, which was really important to us. We did not want, ever want to take a child from someone who could raise a child or who, you know, deeply wanted to, but needed support. So we really liked that agency. We went on to get all of our paperwork done. And before our paperwork was even turned in, we had a call from the agency that said, can you get the rest of that in today? <laughs> you have two moms already looking at wow. your file. Wow. And so our story was just so crazy because from beginning to end in our adoption, we went to the meeting on February 6th, the first initial, do we want to work with you? To our daughter was born on April 27th. Wow. So it was just, we were in the right place at the right time. I think for that first adoption, we were still really young. When I look back on that, I think, what were we thinking? You know, other 23 and 24 year olds are like, let's party. And we're like, let's have a kid. So we brought our first daughter home. And then in the next two years, a friend of ours found herself in a situation where she could not parent. And she asked us to take her kids. And we did not know anything about the foster care system. But because Department of Child Services was already involved, we could not take the kids unofficially. We had to become foster parents. And so we were pretty naive. We said, you know, shoot, I would want someone to help me if I were in this situation. We'll take the kids. 
got our foster license, we scrambled. We used every resource, jumped through every hoop um, and brought those two kids home. And we really thought that they would be able to return to their parents, but it was not possible. And so four years later, we adopted those two children. And from that point on, once you have your foster care license and you see the need, you know, it's really hard to close your license because there just is always, there's always a child sleeping at the Department of Child Services office. There's always uh, a child in the guardian home, which I think no longer exists, but it was um, more the style of an orphanage. They would never call it that, but it was like a a building where kids could go who couldn't find a foster family. So there's there was always a need. And so really then over the next nine years, we took 22, 23 children uh, later. Our story has changed since probably we gave you those details. <laughs> um, but, you know, once, once your door is open, it's open. And so we ended up out of those children, we adopted six from the foster care system. And then two of our children were adopted privately. So actually our oldest daughter had come to live with us as a 15 year old, okay. just in and out of our house. Her mom was very sick, wonderful, amazing woman of God, but she was very sick and she was in and out of the hospital. And so her daughter came to live with us and she passed away uh, just after Rachel turned 18. So no need for foster care, no need for guardianship. You know, there was always a parent alive and then she was an adult, but as most of us know, 18 is not really an adult. And so she just stayed. And she is the most amazing big sister for all of the rest of our children. Uh, she was there for everybody's adoption, there for, you know, every heartache, every joy. And when she was 25 years old, she came to us and said, I know what I want for Christmas. I want to be adopted. I want the piece of paper that says I have a family. Hmm. And so that's how we came to eight. Wow. That's great. And you have a couple of grandchildren now? We do. <laughs> that is one of the coolest things about foster care and adoption is that um, we're not technically old enough to have our two oldest children. Uh -huh. um, but because adoption and foster care are weird like that, um, <laughs> we now have, <laughs> we have an almost five-year-old granddaughter. We have, let's see. Oh, goodness gracious. He's almost 20 months old. So by the time this podcast comes out, he will uh, just be turning two wow. uh, grandson. And then we have another grandson who just turned one. What a neat family. It's awesome. Thank you. So in your book, Born Broken, you share the story of your son, Alexander. It's my understanding Alexander has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Can you share yes. a little bit how it manifested in him and how did that impact his life and your family's life? So fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is the umbrella over all disorders that are caused by prenatal alcohol exposure. And so what we know is that many, many, many women still believe that a small amount of alcohol is safe in pregnancy. So this is a disorder that crosses all economic boundaries, all races, all religions. Um, well, I guess, except the ones that really are dialed down on no alcohol. So this is something that's very common, but it disguises itself as some other disorders. Mm. So children who have an FASD um, may look like they have autism, may look like they have ADHD. 
may look like they have oppositional defiant disorder. And so I, I find that that's important to say only because it is still a widely unrecognized disorder, even though it affects so many children and adults. So the way that this affects our family Um, We have had many children come through our home who were drug or alcohol exposed. There is really no way to just put your finger on what that looks like because you never know which part of the brain was developing on the day that the child was exposed to Mm. drugs and alcohol. And because a child is rapidly growing inside their mother's womb, so many changes are happening. So you may have a child with uh, a brother and sister, for instance, with the same DNA, same, you know, genetic makeup, same mom and dad, and, but they were exposed to drugs and alcohol at different times. And so you may have one child that is affected quite severely, whether that is in facial features or in their executive functioning skills. You may have another child that just seems a little you know, just struggles with reading or just uh, struggles with impulse control. So you're going to have a variety of ways that drug and alcohol exposure affect a child. So for our son, we noticed from the time he was about one, something isn't right. But because this is so misunderstood, even within the medical community, we kept going to the pediatrician and saying, I feel like something's wrong. Um, But the pediatrician would say, well, you know, he's a boy and you have two Mm -hmm. girls. You just don't know what you're getting into. Mm. And we thought, well, okay, I mean, maybe that's possible. He was hyperactive, climbing from the ceiling, no sense of self-preservation whatsoever. So, you know, oh my gosh, climbing out a second story window, you know, so we're going, well, I mean, it's surprising that men ever make it to adulthood if this is what (laughs) raising a boy is like, you know? So, So we kind of just didn't get that diagnosis until one of our younger children was adopted and an aunt, a biological aunt came to us and said, I need to let you know that his mom was drinking Mm -hmm. the whole pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And we said, oh gosh, you know, but we keep being told there's no there's no proof of lasting effects. And so I went to the computer and I started Googling it and I found out, oh my gosh, my child is showing all of these symptoms. I had a friend who was a genetics counselor, thank goodness, because I ran it by her and she said, I'm going to get you into the fetal alcohol clinic at Riley Hospital. I say all of that because many of us who are raising children who are drug and alcohol exposed don't even know where to start. Right. Um, right. So for our son... And for multiple children in our home were drug and alcohol exposed. For them, it's a variety of things that are more difficult for them. And some of the the vastly difficult things are in such high contrast to the really amazing qualities that our children have. So they can be compassionate, generous, kind, loving, creative, and also have a temper that goes zero to 60 and you know, furniture is getting broken, you know, and those Mm -hmm. two things don't seem to match up within the same person. But children who have that drug and alcohol exposure can have that kind of personality that is in conflict with itself all the time. Mm. Wow, you did such a great job of communicating what that is like and the process that you went through. And I find that so common in, in not just like fetal alcohol, but in so many cases of children with disability or special need, how we go from doctor to doctor to doctor, trying Mm -hmm. to figure out, 
as moms, we get this sense, you know, we know there's something wrong. We know there's something off, but we don't know what, and we can't define it and we can't put our thumb on it. And we can go from doctor to doctor and still get no answers. So, so thankful for that biological aunt who stepped in and gave you that critical piece of information that really helped you dial in on what was going on with Alexander. Absolutely. And you guys, you know this, you know, just uh, parenting children with special needs is exactly that. It's even sometimes when you find that answer, you still feel like you're standing alone. Yes. Yeah. And you can feel like that for years, decades. Yes. Yes. Yeah. As a mom, while you were walking through that, how did that impact you emotionally and spiritually? Well, we are still walking through it. Yes. So I would say that being a parent challenges my emotional stability (laughs) every day. (laughs) Being a parent is a really big job and it's really important because you are caring for a child. You are raising an adult and uh, what an amazing responsibility. So just being a parent can challenge our faith. It can bring us to our knees it can strengthen our faith. And I would say special needs parenting is the very same. I would say that there are moments where just within this last week, where I have come before the Lord and said, I don't understand. You know, he wants to love you. I love you. Um, I want to love you. I want to serve you. He wants to serve you. I don't understand why you can't just reach in his brain and fix that part Mm. uh, that's been damaged. You know, so there's a theme, I think, throughout my spiritual and emotional life of wrestling with God, mm-hmm. resting in God, mm-hmm. wrestling again. Mm-hmm. Um, and again and again. Yeah, I would say it's kind of a cycle of up and down. <laughs> okay, that's good to hear. That's the same with me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> same, same. Yeah, we just wrestle. And those questions that I feel like I may never have an answer to while on earth. Yes. But coming to that point of, well, and our listeners have heard me say it before, but I came to where my favorite verse basically was, I walk by faith and not by sight. Yes. I'm choosing faith. I don't understand, but I will walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, yeah, that's exactly what you shared. Yeah. So on those days when you were struggling, when you're wrestling, what helped you to keep, keep going or, or did you keep going? I would say, I think about quitting, but you know, then somebody needs me to fix them a sandwich or like, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) We're out of clean laundry. Um, Somebody has to pay the bills. There are times that, you know, I just think that's it. I I can't figure out how to do this. I don't know what to do. So, you know, do I want to just quit? Yes. Um, But you know, is that feasible? No. And I'm a responsible person. So (laughs) I always pick back up. But I would say even deeper than that, a few years ago, I was going through a really tough time with one of our children and a really tough time. I can't get into all of that. But um, I was driving in my car. My mom called Hey, how are you doing? And I'm like, you know, I'm on my way to the probation office. You know, my mom's like, okay, (laughs) you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And my mom said, I want to tell you something. When you choose gratitude, it makes Satan afraid. Mm -hmm. And you're under attack right now. And your family is under attack right now. And I know this seems contradictory, but if you can say out loud what you're thankful for, 
you're driving Satan away. This is the thing he's afraid of. And so, you know, I hung up with her because I thought, well, that's the most ridiculous advice I've ever gotten in my entire life. (laughs) My mom is crazy. And uh, I kept driving and I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And so in front of the child who was in trouble, I started to say out loud, I'm grateful that the car's working today. I'm grateful that, you know, we had enough gas money to put in the car. I'm grateful that this child who's in trouble right now is alive instead of dead. And, you know, the more that I began to say those things out loud, there really was power in that Mm. because I genuinely was grateful. Right. And not just at the expense of other people whose children, you know, may have gotten caught doing something that put them in prison or may have not gotten caught and, and found themselves in a dangerous situation and died. Not just my gratitude you know, kind of in contrast to other people, but my genuine gratitude for the moment I'm having right now. And that has really carried through everything that's happened over the last couple of years. So are we having a difficult time right now? We are. Even as I'm talking to you right now, we are we are struggling with this parenting children who have special needs, the the awesome responsibility of that. And then the feeling that I'll never measure up and I'll never mm. be able to do it. I think when we choose the joy in the midst of that, choose to say out loud, I'm really glad we're all at the table having dinner together tonight. I'm really glad that I got to go out and swing on the tree swing with my youngest son. It's finding the moments of joy in the midst of all of this that I think really keeps both Mike and I going. You're about to throw your hands up and say, this is too much. I can't. I don't know what I'm doing. And then you look around and see, my kids are alive. I got to spend one more day with my kids. You know, I have a warm house. I have a great house. You know, I I got to read a story with my 11-year-old before he went to bed tonight. There are always moments of joy, even in the midst of the really dark times. So true. So powerful. It's easy to get in that negative mindset of just focusing on the bad. But uh, to have that shift in perspective of, oh, the tire swing and spending time with our son when we put him to bed or mm-hmm. different things like that just helps reshape, refocus where, where, where your attention is. So sometimes when things are really tough with kids, marriages can split up. You and Mike are still together. So what are some of the things that you have done that supported each other when times were especially rough? All right. This maybe is not going to be the typical answer, Um, but I would say, uh, I mentioned in the beginning that Mike and I are fighters. Fight with each other, fight with the neighbor. That's why we moved out to the country. (laughs) There are no neighbors. Um, Fight for justice, fight for what's right. And I would Mm. say that one of the healthiest parts of our marriage is kind of connected to one of the most unhealthy parts. So we may fight through, oh, it's not my turn to pick the kids. It's not my turn to cook dinner. Are you serious? I took the garbage cans out yesterday. (laughs) All right. I say all of this to say, honesty and open communication have saved our marriage. Mm -hmm. We are not afraid to fight through the details. Mm -hmm. And I think that that fight no, we really aren't going to fight about the garbage cans. You know, I mean, we do sometimes, but then we're like, oh, that was kind of dumb. Sorry. I'm not really upset with you. I'm upset because I was just at the kid's school today and, you know, 
one of our kids is in a lot of trouble at school right now. Yeah, I know. I'm not really mad at you either. I was worried because, you know, our mortgage is due. You know, it's just, but within that honesty and openness, we're not hiding anything. Um, So we might blurt out something else, but Mike and I will both follow it through to the end. Hmm. And I think that has rescued our marriage because there is just nothing that we would want to fight for more than each other and our children. So we might start out bickering through it. But in the end, it, there's there's too much good here. There is too much in this marriage and in this partnership to just let it go like that. There is nobody else I would rather do this life with than my husband. Well, that's wise words, beautiful words. And I hear in that too, learning, well, th- just the critical importance of that honest, open communication, but also how you've learned each other's styles and you've learned how to fight and how to follow that through. That's critically important. Yeah. And not running away in the middle of it and never coming back to it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, excellent. Those are good, helpful, wise words. What would you say to the special needs parent and or the the adoptive parent who finds themselves in survival mode? Hmm. I would say a a lot of our life is survival mode. When we're raising children with special needs, you know, that's kind of where we have to live sometimes. Or um, even when things get calm, we can find ourselves in a place of hypervigilance. So Mm -hmm. we're still triggered by the fact that something might happen. That's all types of special needs parents. So, Mm -hmm. you know, not just the foster and adoption journey, but if we have a child with a medical special need, you know, we may... Uh, just kind of feel that tightness in our chest when we drive past the hospital, that remembrance that something bad could have happened, something bad could happen at any point. I think it kind of goes back to that choosing joy. I think there's intentional self-care that has to happen when we are special needs parents. Um, We have to, you know, one, intentionally set aside time, whether that's five minutes to to shut our bedroom door and look at Facebook on our phone mm-hmm. or, um, you know, just going to bed and giving ourselves 20 minutes to read a book before we fall asleep or finding that friend that, um, that will go out with you, you know, to just hang out at 1030 because that's how long it took your child to go to bed. But you have that one friend that understands, look, I really need to get together and talk, but my house won't be peaceful till 10. Are you good for like, you know, half price appetizers at wherever? (laughs) Finding that person that'll wander through, well, Target's closed at that point. So you might have to go to Walmart, but that person that will just wander around with you at 1030 at night because you finally got your kids to bed. I would say second to that, uh, more importantly than that, we have to come to a place as parents and as special needs parents where we trust that the Lord loves our child more than we do, that the Lord has a plan and a purpose for our child, and that there is nothing that we can do to prevent or control the course of this child's life. So we can do our very, very best as parents, but I'll, I'll point to the child with a, a medical special need. We can't watch that child sleep every night for the rest of their life. We can't stand next to that child every day for the rest of that child's life. 
Sometimes we've got to step out and go to the grocery store. Sometimes we've got to sleep. Sometimes we have to fix ourselves a plate of food. And we have to know with certainty that the Lord loves that child even more than we do. So placing that trust, you know, back in the Lord and saying, I'm going to go ahead and um, I'm going to take care of myself for a little bit so that I can come back more well-rested for my child. And I'm going to trust that the Lord has a plan and a purpose in all of this. That's such great words of advice. And uh, that perspective of God's purpose and that he has a plan, that he loves your child mm-hmm. more, even more than you do. And- I wish I had talked to you 12 years ago. Because I didn't do those things. Yeah. And there were a couple years there where I didn't take five minutes off for like two years. And, And it was too much. And like you said, you can't do that for their whole life. You can't. Your body will quit on you regardless of whether you want it to or not. And That's right. Oh, I, I just appreciate you saying that. I wish that I would have talked to me 16 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Because, uh, you know, we have a child who has a blood disorder and who also had a collapsed lung at one year old and could have died. We thought she was going to die. And that shifted my parenting from that moment. I really and truly was going to watch her sleep and breathe for the rest of her life. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there comes to a point where she just turned 17, you know, she's like, mom, get out of my room. It's inevitable that they will grow up, you know, and there's going to be a a time that they become the adults they're going to become. And they really don't want us to hold their hands their junior year of high school. I find that hard to believe. (laughs) Oh, come on. Right. Why don't you want me here? (laughs) Oh, that's great. So... How would you maintain hope when life circumstances or the outcomes for your child aren't going to improve? I think there are a couple things that I would do. One is adjust your expectation. Every child, regardless of diagnosis, every child was created by God to be the person that he envisioned, not the person that I envisioned. So adjust your expectations and know that your child is becoming uniquely the person he or she was created to be. Two, I would say that when we are raising a child who we know will have a disability the rest of their life, we have to look for the hopeful moments within that. So if we have a child who is never going to be able to um, use their executive functioning skills. They don't have any executive functioning skills. So, you know, you have this child that from preschool can't find both of her shoes. And now in high school, cannot remember where she put her backpack or her homework or the car keys, you know, or anything. That is always going to be a struggle for that child. But rather than throw our hands up and say, this is hopeless, we can always find a place to celebrate. So when we've adjusted those expectations and we look at that child as the unique individual that the Lord created them to be, all of a sudden we see, yes, the executive functioning skills leave something to be desired. However, this child creates amazing art. This child is a fantastic writer. 
This child is one of the kindest friends I've ever met. This child is empathetic. This child cares about others. So somewhere in there is still, you know, not a child that's damaged, but a child that is unique and different. So I would say we maintain hope by, uh, you know, I used the word intentional earlier. I think we have to tell ourselves, this child isn't going to be the second me. And that's probably a good thing because the world can handle just one. And I have my own things that my mom is probably still going, oh my gosh, I hope she gets that together. <laughs> so, but I am uniquely the person I am. And I am learning to use the, the gifts that I have. And I'm learning to compensate for the things that are difficult for myself. My children will do the same thing. So uh, adjusting our expectations and then choosing to find hope you know, in those things that you see um, that your child is uniquely gifted with. That's great. And it, it ties in perfectly with, with the next question here. At the beginning of the podcast, we say there's beauty in the journey and purpose in the pain. How have you seen that to be true in your story? It did get me kind of choked up to think about mm. some of the, some of the really uh, painful parts of parenting, but some of the really painful parts of watching our children struggle through their own stories. Just yesterday, my son who born broken was written about and with the permission of my son. Um, He is now a teenager and many, many, many things are difficult for him. And living inside of his brain has got to be so frustrating. Uh, Reading is difficult. Writing is difficult. Executive functioning is difficult. Memory is difficult. So he's facing the world kind of at a disadvantage very often, and he is very frustrated. But the way that that manifests itself is lashing out toward other people. And so that can then be this cycle of frustration because now I'm frustrated with him and he's frustrated with himself. And now he's frustrated with me because I'm frustrated with him. And this can be a really painful way to live with this child. But we have seen some beauty come out of that. We have seen him reach out to other children, including some of our own children, his brothers and sisters who also have an FASD. We have heard him or watched him kneel down on the level of one of his younger brothers and say, hey, how does it make you feel when I blow my lid, when I'm screaming at everyone? You know, and the younger child will say, it doesn't make me feel good at all. I hate that. And my son, you know, will then say to his brother, I know, I'm really sorry about that. And it's not going to make you feel good if you blow your lid like this either. Come on, let's use one of the coping skills we learned. There is so much redemption with him and there will be so much redemption with him. We have not lost hope for his story. When you see him interact with a child who struggles the way he does, you see a different person. He all of a sudden has the inside scoop. He has the story. He can speak to the heart of another child who is struggling with the trauma of adoption or who is struggling with the trauma of drug and alcohol exposure um, or who is struggling with the trauma of, you know, being in and out of a residential treatment facility. And my son can look into, into the heart of another child and say, I know where you you are right now. I know what this feels like. I would say that, I wouldn't wish this disorder 
on anybody. Um, I would not wish the trauma that my children have been through on anybody. But there is so much beauty as we see our children embrace their own resiliency and lean on the Lord and encourage one another. And my kids can talk to other children in a way that I never could. I can do my best to research what trauma does to a child, Um, but I didn't experience that. I would say the beauty is in the fact that my kids can really use their story and their experiences to help others. And that's a pretty amazing thing. That is really amazing. I love that story. It's neat to see how God's using your son to bring hope and love and joy to other members of your family and other peers that he interacts with. That's just incredible. Right. Absolutely. So how can our audience connect with you? You can find us at confessionsofanadoptiveparent.com. You can find us on Facebook at Confessions of an Adoptive Parent. You can find us on Instagram as Confessions of a Parent. Okay. Okay. Oh, and you can find us on our podcast. I was going to say. The Honestly Adoption Podcast. All That's right. There you go. Excellent. Well, we will put links to all those different places on the show notes. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It was so nice to talk with you guys.